Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, so let's get to it. Are you guys ready? You ready to learn? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, let's get into it. I'm excited about teaching it today. Just a quick little preamble to help everyone know where we've gone so far. We're reading through 2 Corinthians and we're just doing it verse by verse. Uh, So far we've covered the first five chapters. Um, Around chapter three, Paul uh, started um, kind of this long dissertation or uh, an elaborate um, uh, collection of imagery to help communicate what from his perspective, what the gospel looks like, what Christians should look like, uh, what Christian ministry should look like. And the reason why he's doing this is because in this church, there is um, a group of people who have come in um, and have um, uh, essentially called Paul's credentials into question. And they're challenging his thoughts on ministry. They're approaching uh, what Paul has taught as, uh, that's pretty good, but we've got some more better things to think about. And Paul is refuting these guys by giving them a proper understanding of what Christianity and what Christian ministry looks like. And that's helpful for us because that's where we are. So when we see imagery like we have in the last couple chapters, um, it helps us understand, like for example, when we were talking last week, what happens to us when we die? What happens to our body? What happens to our spirit? What happens in the afterlife? But even better than that, what happens in the life after the life after? Because there is a promise for the people of God that goes beyond just, hey, there's good things for you after you die. There's good things for you after you die because you're in the presence of the Lord. But even beyond that, there's even better things beyond that. There is a life after life after death and it's better than anything you've ever experienced. And it is worth trading in the passions and the desires of this world because they don't even compare to the things that are coming our way in this life after life after death. That's some of the imagery that he gave us last week. He's also given this idea of of understanding how to live with purpose, um, the desire to look at Jesus and be transformed by what we see. So he's given us this collection of of imagery that helps us kind of contextualize and get context for uh, what am I supposed to be doing as a Christian? What does a Christian look like? How am I supposed to be acting? Well, Paul would say you're supposed to be acting like someone who's in this long parade that Jesus is leading and the aroma of his presence should be filling everywhere that you go. So that people, they, they, they sniff, your life is different. There's something different about you and, and it's not just you're always happy. There's a hope in you, there's a joy when you talk about the things that we can't touch or see that I don't understand, please explain that to me. That's what living like a Christian looks like and that's what Paul has been kind of dissecting for us. So he left last week in chapter five with this idea of the ministry of reconciliation and that is kind of being um, like, almost like the crescendo of what um, our daily ministry life should look like. The ministry of reconciliation, you have been reconciled back unto God and then congratulations, you've now been deputized to go do the same thing. Go out into the world, be, be ministers of reconciliation and reconcile people back unto God through Christ just like you were. Go and preach the gospel and, and call the lost back into Jesus, right? 
Jesus is doing that work, but he's asking you to partner with him, come alongside, and get involved in that work because God loves sharing the joy of his work with his people. That's kind of what Paul has been communicating. So we left with that idea on ministry reconciliation last week, and he picks it up a little bit in chapter six for the first few verses. Um, so that's where we're gonna go today. So um, 2 Corinthians chapter six, I'm gonna read a little bit and then talk a little bit. We'll go, let's say, with verses one through 10 or so. And I'm gonna pick out a few things um, that kind of are highlights uh, that guide us through what he's talking about. So let's read it starting in verse one. It says, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now we've talked about how when he's writing these, um, these chapters, he's writing a letter. So this is not broken up chapter and verse like it was originally when he wrote it. So these ideas are kind of connected um, regardless of the chapter. Um, and the end of 21 in verse five, uh, chapter five, when he's talking about the ministry of reconciliation, he continues that thought back into six when he says, okay, so we're talking about the ministry of reconciliation and you having a responsibility to participate in the work of God. Well, since we're all working together with him, then, if that's what we're doing, if we're doing the ministry of reconciliation, then we please, we appeal to you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. That's important. We're gonna pause there because I wanna finish this thought because he continues, he just, he just, it's like a snowball just rolling down the hill, just picks up speed. For he says, in a favorable, favorable time I listened to you and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And he's quoting Isaiah 49, eight there. But then he uses Isaiah to kind of build on this thought. Okay, so I don't want you to receive the grace of God in vain because right now is a favorable time. Just like God told Isaiah, now is a perfect time for salvation, a favorable time, a day right now. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. This doesn't sound like something I wanna sign up for. <laughs> but we get a semicolon and then get by purity and knowledge and patience and kindness, the Holy Spirit genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters yet are true. Do you love, I, I, I'm, I love the way he's contrasting that. Look guys, it is equal parts calamity and beatings, but also knowledge and patience and kindness. There's a lot of sleepless nights, there's riots, but there is genuine love and we get the Holy Ghost, right? As unknown, verse nine, and yet well known as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich. That's not putting dollars in your pocket. That's a different kind of rich. As having nothing yet possessing everything. Oh, he's good with his words, isn't he? 
Okay, that's more appetizing. Let's dissect what he's saying by going back up into verse one. So he says, okay, this ministry of reconciliation, this is, this is the thing that's good for us that you're supposed to be participating in, but, um, but as you participate in it, I don't want you to receive the grace of God in vain. Now what does receiving something in vain mean? Now in vain is a word that means without success or result. So what Paul is saying is I don't want you to receive the grace of God without any success or result. Receiving this ministry, receiving the work of God should have some success or fruit bearing in your life and it should also produce some kind of result that is uh, manifested and shown on the outside so that other people can see. People should be able to examine and see from afar that you have not received the grace of God in vain. It's actually producing something on the inside of you and you are being changed. You're not the same guy or gal that you were before because once Christ got a hold of you, everything got wrecked and you got broken and then put together in the most beautiful way possible. So what is, my question would be, what is the success and results of receiving the grace of God? If, if Paul says, don't receive it in vain, meaning don't take it and, and without producing some result inside of you, what are those results? How do we receive the grace of God not in vain? How do we receive it and see some results? What are the results? Well, I would argue that the results that he's talking about are the ones he's been echoing in the last four, excuse me, four chapters. The results that should be working in your life is you should be participating in the ministry of reconciliation. Don't grab a hold of the grace of God and participate without being changed by the thing you're grabbing a hold of and letting it control and change who you are. That's important. The other thing would be looking at Jesus and letting his light shine on other people. How do I receive it without this uh, um, not being changed by it? Well, when I receive it, what I'm doing essentially is I'm allowing it to change me and I am now staring at Jesus rather than staring at the things of this world. This is not a thing that I want anymore. I spent most of my life staring at this and wanting this thing, but it just kind of loses its shimmer and shine in comparison to the glory of God. It's like like comparing the brightest flashlight that you can purchase on Amazon to the sun. Like I don't care if you buy a 10,000 lumen flashlight that lights up your entire yard in the dark. The moment the sun comes up, you can't even tell if that thing's on. That's the difference we're talking about. The difference between the things that used to be so shiny and bright in this world not having any appeal anymore because you've received the grace of God and it's changing you. How is it changing you? Well, first and foremost, it's changing what you're looking at. You don't want that stuff anymore. It has no appeal. If we're gonna go back even further, uh, I think it would mean what we talked about at the beginning, living your life like you're in this procession where Jesus is leading you and you're following his lead, he's not following your lead, then everywhere you go, the aroma of Christ fills the room, not the aroma of you, not your stench, not your attitude and your posture and your thoughts, the aroma of Christ is filling every room that you step into. That's what being changed, that's the results that we're looking for when we receive the grace of God. That's what Paul's trying to communicate. But the beauty of it is right after that, he puts a clock on it. 
He says, okay, now uh, there's a thing that I want you to receive. I don't want you to receive in vain. I want it to produce some results. And when do I want you to receive it? When do I want all this change to start taking place? Well, he quotes Isaiah 49, 8, well, in a day of salvation. Well, now, now is the day of salvation. When do I want this stuff to start taking root? Not two weeks from now, not when you get out of high school, not when you finish your degree, not when you have more spare time. Right now is when Paul wants to see the grace of God making a change in your life. And you say, well, I'm 71 years old. I've been doing this walk with Christ for a while. There's not much more that I can change. You are deceived. I love you, and you're much older than I am, but you're deceived. For those of you that are young people, like 16, 17, 18, I've got plenty of time to think about this. No, you don't. You are not promised tomorrow, and by reading the scripture, Paul would encourage you, if he were standing here today, he would say to the young and the old, you don't have the time you think you have, so let the grace of God have its work right now. Don't start staring at Jesus tomorrow, stare at him now. Be changed by him now. Let your heart be transformed and stop wanting all the things of the world right now, today. Today is the day of salvation. There has never been a better day to forsake this world and trade it all all in for Jesus. Now, today, this is the day. This is what Paul is communicating to us. And why is he communicating this? Why is this a thing we're supposed to receive not in vain? Why is this a thing that we're supposed to do today? It's, it's as simple as this, because this is what the Christian life looks like. And anything short of this is a false gospel. Anything short of complete abandoned to Christ is not Christianity. It is a cheap, sold on the corner by some guy who's trying to make a profit version of Jesus' messages. So, so, so Paul would say, I want you to receive the grace of God, not in vain, but I want it to produce some results. And when do I want those results? I want them right now. I want to see you start changing right now. I don't want you to stop making excuses about why it's not working and why you're not following and why you're not obeying. I want change right now. I want submission and obedience now because the beauty of what's going to take place and happen in your heart is far greater than the things you're holding on to right now. So just let go go. Why? Because this is what Christians do. This is the sum of everything Jesus taught. And he brings this up when he comes into verse 4. He says, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. So he's essentially saying, as servants of God, we're setting an example for you that we want you to follow. And this example, it's full of a lot of stuff that you like and a lot of stuff that you don't like. This example is filled with afflictions and hardships, but also purity and knowledge and sleepless nights and hunger, but also love and truthful speech and the power of God. And this is important. Why? Because there are two main camps within Christendom. They are the everything's terrible Christianity. And then there's the everything's blessed Christianity. You know what I'm talking about. And this camp writes a lot of books. And this camp makes a lot of money on television shows and pumping uh, stuff out through uh, online services. And there's the, oh, 
is just ashes and things are terrible and depravity and things are bad and it's, they're bad, oh, they're even worse. Things are getting worse. But by the grace of God, we're gonna get through it. And there's the camp over here who's completely oblivious to suffering. Oh no, we're blessed. Why do I? Because we're, we're blessed. Everything's blessed. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Blessed, blessing, blessed. You know what Paul would say? It's not either or. It's a whole bunch of both. And we like drawing a line in the sand because we want to be on the right team. And Jesus is like, it's not really team, it's a family. That's the language. There, there's, there's no home team and visitor team in the New Testament. There's no coaches. There's no keeping score. There's no uniforms. What do we have in the New Testament? We've got mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and family and homes. The New Testament is filled with family language, not sports analogies. There is not competition in the New Testament. There is family lineage connecting faith to a long history of family faith. That's what we have in the New Testament. And what Paul is trying to remind us is like, look, you can't throw yourself into one camp. You can't completely get into, like just exercising the study of God's word with your mind and refusing to study and worship God with your body. Here's a newsflash. You're gonna spend eternity in a resurrected human flesh body form. We are not all here just doing some thoughtful things, mental exercises, trying to get more intelligent. We are trying to grow in our faith so that that growth takes hold and manifests in the physical, the outside, the transformation, so that you do things on the outside different. You are studying God's word so that what, the words that come out of your mouth sound different. Are, are you following? We forget that. We, we, we assume that the, the, the extent that we need to get into this is just kind of diving into the Hebrew to the Greek or, or figuring out, well, how does this apply to me? And, and all that's a good, and we leave with thinking, oh, that was, a really, that was a really good message. Well, great, it was a good message, but what is it doing in you? Are you changing? Look at your life today and one year ago. Do you look any different from a spiritual maturity perspective? Or are you convinced that you're the one who's supposed to be telling everyone else where they need to change and grow? Some of you guys, you don't like this. Well, I won't be back. I'm not a fan of this. Well, guess what? I'm not a fan of it either because I read this and this, this applies to me. I'm not one speaking to you as, as one who has arrived. I have a plethora of things that I'm reading through this thinking, oh, that's me, that's that thing. I need to deal with that thing. Justin showed it this morning when he's leading worship and he was overwhelmed with the grace of a mighty God and he couldn't even finish singing. Church, where is that awe? When was the last time that you read something in here or you spent some time in prayer and the Lord said something to you that just blew your hair back and you couldn't move? Is your response, I've never felt that. You can. It's offered. Do you remember this? You remember when Saul got saved? Blasted off his donkey. 
blasted off. We're talking feet back, blinded for multiple days. That wasn't in the Old Testament. That happened after Jesus rose from the dead. That happened during the period that we are living right now. That happened after Jesus rose from the grave. There is an offer to the people of God to be wrecked by the grace of God and not just in the way you think, but in the way you live. And that's what Paul is saying. For me, I can suffer riots and sleepless nights and hunger and beatings and calamity because I've seen the Holy Spirit move and the genuine love of God and truthful speech. I've witnessed the power of God. So through slander, I know there's also praise. And sorrow, buddy, there's also rejoicing. And so for the Christian, it is not either or. It is a whole lot of both and. There is absolute affliction and suffering and pain and trials and tribulations, but there is joy unspeakable. There is peace that surpasses all understanding, and both are offered to the people of God. And Paul wants you to experience them both right now. Amen? All right. Let's go to uh, 6, verse 11. So we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us. You are restricted in your own affections. Mm, That stings. So in return, I speak to you as children, widen your hearts also. Let's pause there for a second because he has just finished contrasting the joys and the sorrows of ministry with this appeal. This is what 11 through 13 is. It's an appeal. It's a, hey guys, can I, can I get something from you? We speak freely. Our heart is wide open. So widen your heart also. Essentially what he's saying is, do you guys see how we live? Do you see um, how we express our experiences and share them with you? You see how freely we talk about how difficult but how amazing things can be at the same time? Do that. That's what we want for you. I'm setting the example as Paul. I'm doing this, I'm leading, and I want you to follow my example. This is what I want for your church, Corinth. He's not sharing all of his suffering and his joys because he wants sympathy. He's sharing his experiences equally because he wants this culture to flow from the top down within this church. And that's an important principle for us to understand. This is a leadership principle. So this applies within the context of God's family and the church, but it also applies in business and friendships and in homes. And the principle is simply this. In leadership, everything flows from the top down. The people who are at the top of leadership, the decisions they make with their life, the culture they set flows down to the people in the organization, the people in the family, the people in God's church. That is why James tells us that many of you should not want to be teachers. 
because they will be held in much, with a much higher standard than the rest of us. Because they will be held not just to the standard of what they, what, what they live in their own life, they will be held to the standard of what they taught others to live in their lives. And trust me, y'all don't want none of that. So be careful to say, I think I want some of that. I think I want to get involved in ministry. I wanna get up there and say some things and teach some things. The Bible would caution you to that because the moment you step into that role, you assume the understanding that you're going to be judged in a different, more dangerous way. Because what you speak gets down into people's lives. Now, you're not gonna like this, but dads, this applies to you. You're biblically the head of your home. And the tone and the culture that you set as the dad flows down to your wife and down into your children. And if you wanna be an ornery, argumentative, short-tempered man, do not be surprised when you see that in your teenagers. For those, we have a ton of small business owners in, in, in this church. You own your own business, you are the head of your organization, your company. You have, to be, you have to remind yourself that as the head of that organization, there is more that you do in the lives of your people than just make sure that they get a paycheck. You are establishing a culture and a value system that flows down into them within the organization that you are running. And if you set the kind of tone that, that, well, just generally you're a lazy person and you don't get to the things that need to, get, need to be gotten to, then guess what you're gonna see in the people under you? You can't expect what you don't model. And what Paul is saying is we commend ourselves, we've set this example for you, and this is what we wanna see inside this church. And if you look at churches today, um, if you see uh, a leadership that has self-control issues, guess what? The people are going to exhibit those same self-control issues. This is in everything that has to do with leadership because it always flows from the top down. And Paul wants to see something different out of this church. And so what he does is he openly shares his lives. He says, look, our heart is wide open and what we want for you is for you to widen your heart also. We want you to live with an open heart. We want you to share your lives with each other and we want you to live with some vulnerability. I want you to be okay sharing things with the reality that you may get hurt by them. Because in that hurt, guess what? There's growth to take place. We like to hide stuff. I mean, well, I, 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 could, I could see Paul making argument, like I don't want you to know all the hard things I went through. I just want you to know that I'm here for you and I love you. But if I, if I, if I as Paul, don't tell you these hard things, then when they start happening to you, you're gonna think that God hates you and did something wrong. So the problem is when, when Paul comes up and he says, look, I have a desire 
to want to share these things with you. I'm not just doing it so that I can get some sympathy and that you can, you can feel something from me. I'm doing this because this is what I want from the top down through the entire church. And guess what? This extends to us today too. The culture of the modern day church should be what Paul is setting in the early church. In the church, there should be this community of vulnerability and sharing and living our lives together and leaning on one another when things get difficult, but also rejoicing when things go great. That's what Paul's trying to communicate. This is the pattern he wants to see in this church, and this is the pattern he wants to see in us. So the question will be, why don't we see that? If this is the pattern, if this is what Paul wants, why don't we see it on a regular basis? And the answer is found in verse 12. I'll, I'll go back and read it to you. He says in 11, we speak freely and we, our hearts are open. In 13, we want you to widen your hearts open. And in verse 12, he says, this is, you're not restricted by us. Why is your heart not wide open? Why are things not working? Uh, because of your own affections. Your own affections are what's stopping what God wants most in his church. Personal desires and affections are the one thing that stops the flow of vulnerability and the moving and the working of God in local churches. Your own personal affections and desires. Sometimes it flows from the top down because a pastor, he's got more affection for popularity or wealth or status. He's not interested in serving and loving the people in the room. He's interested in rallying a group online that can support and buy his books when they ultimately hit. On November 12th, don't forget. It is a stepping stone to something else. And Paul says, this stuff makes me want to throw up. That's not what God's church looks like. It's not a machine. It's a family. And if what's being perpetuated is a desire to feed the affections of wealth, to feed the affections of, of popularity, then that's going to get down into the people. And guess what they're not going to be hungry for? The gospel of Jesus. Guess what they're not going to do when the worship starts? Lift their hands and worship. Guess what they're not going to do when the message is preached? Get out their notes and start reading and following along and paying attention and working it over in their hearts throughout the week. Guess what, they, what, guess what they're going to do? They're going to do the same thing that the pastor does. They're going to phone it in. They're going to show up. They're going to be there on Sunday, but there's no change that's going to happen. They're going to go back to their lives. They're going to struggle with the same old thing every single week, and they're not going to figure out why we're not seeing any results. How else is it manifested? It's manifested sometimes when leadership values privacy over transparency or availability. I, 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 need, a, I need a wall. I can't, I can't let you into my home. I can't let you see what my life is like. I don't want you talking to my children because they might say something to, to you about who I really am. And so, that, so, so I, I, I kind of know the pastor, but I don't really know him. Like, like there, there just seems like a line I can't cross. It, it, there's, I get this impression that he's not really the same guy off the stage as he is on the stage. And what does that do within the culture of the church? It perpetuates that culture so that it, it essentially tells you it's okay for you to live that way. It's okay for you to be involved in a local church and walk around holding everybody at arm's length. Hey, love you. Oh, don't get too close there. COVID. 
don't know me, don't tell anything about me, don't exp- I can't, no, no, don't need your opinion, thank you. Don't want you in my business, not interested. Well, keeping people away, yeah, it shelters you a little bit. You know what else it does? It robs you of the shared joy that we're supposed to also have in the people of God. Guess what, when you have a baby, guess who's not coming to the hospital? Anybody, nobody's showing up. When your kid graduates from college, when your kids are getting married, and we, we, hey, come to the wedding, no one shows up. Well, I don't know. Well, I know. This is you walking around like this, because you've been a part of this family for three years, and nobody really knows you. You never show up to anything other than Sunday mornings. You're the first one in, and you're, or you're, you're the last one in. You're the first one to leave. No one really even knows. Uh, is that his wife? I can't tell. Is his sister? Do they have kids? I don't think those are his kids. Are those his kids? You laugh, but these are the conversations that are had when, when people in the family want so bad to know you and love you and share life with you. And it's just like, no, that's not what we do in church. I, uh, bye. And Paul is saying, there's a better way. There's a different way. That's how the world does church. That's not how Christians do ch- church. That's the offer. That's the beauty of what he's showing us. And there's many expressions of this. I can give you examples all day. Sometimes the cultural affections of the church, they just crave worldliness. They just, they like, they like the stuff of the world more than God. You know, you guys serve good coffee? Uh, Maybe I'll check you out. You have good music? I'll check you out. What difference does it make if the music is good or not? Is it lifting up Jesus? Yes. Then I think we'll figure it out. We'll be all right. Our projector's been broke for like a month. You guys keep coming back. It's because the, the right things are the right things. But within the family of God, if you're not careful, leadership can perpetuate this idea that the wrong things are important. And it feeds into the wrong things and then pretty soon no one knows why it's broke. Nobody knows how to fix it. Because we're treating it like a lawnmower that needs a repairman rather than the family of God that needs Jesus. Let's go to verse 14. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For are the temple of God, of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and, uh, and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Isn't this, isn't this what he said? Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Go over to chapter seven, verse one. Since we have these promises, these things that the Lord said to us, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing the holiness, excuse me, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So Paul has just made the argument that God's people share this deep bond. That's what we've been talking about. We are redeemed. We uh, share highs and lows. um, but, But we do this. We're able to do this because we all in community are all looking at the same thing. We're looking at the world through the lens that Christ gave us. That's why we can share the highs and lows and, and not emphasize the lows or emphasize the highs too much. 
We look at the world through the way Jesus tells us. We look at scriptures and we have this lens for the world and we all understand we're all on the same page. That's why we can all do this together and live in unity. The problem is that there are some people in the world who don't use this lens to see the world. There are some folks, non-believers, unbelievers as Paul would call them, people who don't follow Christ, that don't look at the world through this lens, and Paul would say, be careful about getting unequally yoked with those folks because the way they see the world and the way you see the world is completely different. And the closer you yoke yourselves in life to people that have a contrary view of viewing the world, they don't, they don't trust scripture, they don't, they don't have anything to do with what Jesus says. They don't understand humility. They think in order to get ahead, you've got to climb the ladder. When Jesus is saying you want to get ahead, you go down. Don't, don't even get on the ladder. Go dig a hole below the ladder. Get as low as you possibly can. And the world is like, no, no, what are you doing? You don't get up by going down. You're like, no, this is what Jesus said. This is what we do. <laughs> that contrast is going to create just, um, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? It's gonna create persecution. It's gonna blow up constantly because the way you see the world and the way they see the world is completely different. So Paul says, hey, because we're all on the same page and we're all doing this together, be careful about getting unequally yoked with people who have a completely different worldview than you. Now he's not saying you can't have anything to do with non-believers because if we don't have anything to do with non-believers, how do we preach the gospel to them? You have to be close enough to them for them to examine your life and for you to love them like Jesus did. He spent all of his free time hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors, thieves. And people accused him of like, hey, you're gonna, that's gonna start rubbing off on you, Jesus. You don't want any part of that. He was around them enough. But what Paul is saying is that there is a line that you can't cross in yoking yourself to somebody who has a completely different worldview. He says, in light of what we're called to, don't get married to non-believers. He calls back what he said in 1 Corinthians 7 in this imagery of, of une being unequally yoked. One of, the, one of the biggest ways to yoke yourself in life is in the, co the covenant of marriage. Don't date someone who's a non-believer. Don't marry someone who's a non-believer. You're only asking for trouble because Jesus is calling you to see the world one way and they can't until they accept Jesus. And you're gonna try and make it work a thousand ways to Sunday, but it's not ever gonna work. It just isn't, and look, I know you love this person. That's not what's called into question. What's called into question is, what do you love more? Do you love them more than Jesus? If so, uh, case closed. Your Honor, I rest my case. That's the entire case. Because the affections we have are for Jesus above all else. And if you can't love him more than the things of this world, including that person that you love in this world very, very much, who wants nothing to do with Jesus, that's a problem. And if, it may not be a problem when you first start. It may not be a problem when you walk down the aisle. But you know what's going to be a problem? When you have children. And then you try to decide what to do on Sundays. Then it's a real problem. You're like, what? I don't know where this came from. Well, Paul's like, I know where it came from. Don't yoke yourself with unbelievers. I think this applies in business. Be careful about who you get in business with. 
because their lens is not the same as yours. You don't value the same things they value. Avoid um, uh, advice from non-believers. Look, s- some of you, 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 gotta, you gotta stop watching daytime television to get your advice. Like you need to like unsubscribe from like Oprah's book club or something. You need to shut off Facebook. You need to stop subscribing to YouTube channels from 20-somethings who are not interested in a changed life for you. All they want is that check from Google because of how many subscribers they hit. You ever wonder why every single video you watch, hey, this is your boy, make sure you smash that like button and hit subscribe because they don't really care about any advice. They don't care about anything other than making sure that you give them what they want, which is a new truck or another $10,000 to give out to their friends. But in the middle of those videos, what do they do? They, they kind of, they, they filter in their thoughts on, on, on this funny thing that's happening with their worldview, and then pretty soon, this person who has some expertise on like changing the oil in a truck turns and looks, and says, you know what, uh, I got a couple opinions on the church, and I don't really go anymore, and here's the reason why. I'm like, oh, this guy's an expert on changing oil. He, he's also got some interesting thoughts on theology. No! Don't listen to that dude for that. This is what Paul is saying. Don't unequally yoke yourself with advice from the world that is contrary to what God has taught his people. And he builds this idea by quoting scripture. Can idols live in the same temple? If God lives among his people, can the people live in sin? The answer to all those questions is no. The only response, the only proper response for a Christian in verse, chapter seven, verse one, is to come out and cleanse yourself from every defilement of body and spirit. Now here's the question. What are defilements of body and spirit? What are they? Well, we've got some lists Paul gave us in 1 Corinthians 6. Fornication, homosexuality, coveting, hatred, gossip. Those are obvious things that you need to cleanse your body from, but James 4.17 tells us that knowing the right thing to do and not doing it is also considered sin. So it's not just a list that you can follow. It's also knowing the right thing and refusing to do that. You need to cleanse yourself, body, and spirit of that as well. Let's go to chapter seven, verse two. So guys, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in our, all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For, for even, okay, so here's in verse five, he circles back to chapter two, and if you were with us when we were going through, it was funny, in Second uh, Corinthians chapter two, 12 through 13, Paul started um, talking about him wanting to meet Titus, and then he interrupted himself, and now, uh, what, four chapters later, she's picking back up on his thought. Oh yeah, so now we're back to what I said back in chapter two. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he has comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I, re- uh, so that I rejoice still even more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that letter grieved you, 
though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For, 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 for see, what earnestness the godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent of the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. What is he talking about? Well, he circles back to this conversation with Titus. You see, he left Ephesus because there were riots, and he expected to meet Titus in the next town because he had sent Titus with um, a letter, 1 Corinthians, this letter of correction, and he wasn't really sure what the news was. Did they hear it? Did they receive it? Because I had to put some pretty harsh things in that letter. And so then I go up, and I, 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 I cross over into the first town, and Titus is not there, and so I'm a little bit worried because he should have been here by now. And then we cross over to Macedonia and then Titus comes up to us and he gives us the news that in this church, things are going great. That you received a letter, that you were transformed by it, that you love Jesus, that it forced your eyes to fix your, your, your eyes on him, that you're being transformed. And you know what it did? It created inside of us this sense of joy, this kind of joy um, that just kind of overflowed. And, and, and the, the beauty of it uh, is that this joy was the kind of thing that um, uh, it, it wasn't just, uh, I heard, okay, I was excited that Corinth was doing good, and Titus was excited that Corinth was doing good, but then I also got excited because Titus was excited about Corinth doing good. You see what he's doing here? He's expressing the joy that we live in as the people of God. He's saying there is a joy in knowing you're doing well. There's a joy in Titus knowing you're doing well. But there's also this shared joy that when I see other people reacting well because you guys are doing well, that's really exciting to me as well. Now the thing about what he's talking about here is he's talking, we, we kind of covered this whole um, idea of, of uh, godly grief. We covered it during our message series on walking in forgiveness. So I don't want to rehash a lot of that. But what he's essentially saying here um, is that he had to say some harsh words, but he's okay saying those things because he knew that it was going to produce something on the inside of them. He was okay pushing on the, the buttons and, and having to withdraw some things emotionally from them and call them to task on some issues because he knew that ultimately that's exactly what they needed to hear. They needed to hear the truth in love from someone they knew loved him. And this is an important principle for us to understand. And I think the best way to illustrate this, um, and I've used this numerous times with other folks, but it's, it's a good time to illustrate it here, um, is to think about relationships kind of like a bank account. And what I mean by that is um, I can't go uh, to any bank in town here in Tallahassee and just withdraw money. I'd be nice, but I can't do that. I can only withdraw money from accounts that have my name on it and that I have put money into. You follow? And I can also only withdraw money in proportion to the money I have put into it. The point is, relationships are the same way. In order to make a withdrawal, 
in order to say a tough thing to somebody and have them hear it and know you love them and see change creates a tremendous amount of depositing. Loving, serving, being available, caring for. Now we care and make deposits just because that's who we are. But also, one day will come a time where somebody is acting like a bonehead and they need to hear the truth. Guess who they're gonna be able to hear it from? Not the person who knows nothing about them, the person who has walked with them through these bonehead moves for the last two years and loves them and that person knows they love them and has made deposits and is able to say, hey, I, I love you, man, but your wife's right. That was pretty stupid. I'm not on your side on this. You need to repent. You need to go back to her and you need to repent and you say, I'm sorry for leading you poorly. That's what needs to happen. We don't need to have a counseling appointment where we pull everybody in and we see each other's sides. No, you're wrong. I love you, but you're wrong. But if we're not making those deposits on a regular basis, then you can't make those withdrawals when it's time. And that's why it's so important for us to live in shared vulnerability and shared community because we're all simultaneously making deposits and mutually submitting to each other because we're gonna need that love, sharing of joy, but also there's gonna come a time where someone's gonna have to tell us something we don't like here and it's always easier to hear the truth when it's seasoned with love, amen? All right, so let's, let's finish with this. He goes, uh, this is the last just few verses, verse 13, uh, chapter seven. He says, therefore we are, com we are comforted and besides our own comfort we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was put to shame when he showed up and started talking about all the good things you were doing. I told him you guys were great, but man, when he started telling me how great you guys were, it was wild. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting for Titus has proved true. And his affections for you and is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. How you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So Paul finishes this reminder with what I just talked about. There's this shared joy within the people of God. And I think that this is a thing that we constantly forget. And this is just what I want to close on today. The idea that there is a shared joy that is available in the people of God if we pay attention to it. But, the, but the, 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 the mirror reflection to that is there is also um, um, a shared a groaning or stress when the people of God refuse to obey God. I just wanna push on that just for a second. Your personal obedience creates a joy in the family of God but your personal disobedience creates a stress in the family of God. Now this is not a thing we like talking about like a lot, right? Especially as a pastor, because I don't wanna give the impression that working through issues is like tough, but it is. When people choose to disobey God and experience the repercussions of sin, that creates a stress 
on the family of that person, the church that person is a part of, and specifically me, the pastor of that church. And what I'm talking about is I'm talking about increased stress and pressure and counseling and meetings. I'm talking about increased worry and concern for the condition of your heart and your family and the things that what your choices are doing and how you're affecting your children. I'm talking about the pressure that starts to ripple down in your relationships, how it affects teams that you serve and areas that you serve in the church. This is the stuff nobody likes talking about because we just assume what's the cost of doing business. There will be some people who are disobedient in church and we just work through it. And that is true, but we can't just pretend like it doesn't create a stress when you walk in disobedience. It does. It means more phone calls for people. It means more time away from the families. And what I don't want you to take was, well, well, then I'll just, I just won't share my stuff with you. That's not the takeaway. The takeaway is walk in obedience. The takeaway is when you're suffering, you don't have to hide and not tell anybody. We want to participate in that, but what we want even more than participating in working through the struggles and the repercussions of sin so that you can see the redemption of God, what we want more is for you to not even touch that stuff and love Jesus more than it and not experience any of the repercussions from sin that you loved more than Jesus. Because while there are repercussions and stresses added within the church when you walk in disobedience, like Paul talks about with Titus and Corinth, there is joy in the family. It fosters openness when you walk in obedience to Christ. It fosters a community of freedom within your family and the people who are closest to you. It changes the way we pray about you and the way we pray for you. It changes the things that we talk about when we gather. You know what I would love to do when I sit across the table at a guy for lunch? I would love to talk about nonsense. I appreciate the time we can talk about your marriage and how things are not working and how things need to change. Like, I'm, I'm there for that. But, but, but above working through the repercussions of you having your own affections and loving this world more than Jesus, I would love talking about all the joy that is shared when you love Jesus more than this stuff and we don't have to spend all of our time figuring out, well, how are we gonna get through this mess? Because you never created a mess. Look, it's dangerous to talk like this because I, I understand the takeaway is, well, I'll just hide. I don't want to inconvenience you. I don't want to inconvenience people. That's what we're here for. But above the reconciliation process is this thing offered to the people of God, and that is walking in the joys of obedience. And what I want for our church above all else is is not to just serve in a thing and be able to experience the redemptive work of God and this stuff is awesome, That that is powerful, it's good stuff. What I want above all else is this greater offer that Paul is sharing when the church chooses to walk in obedience and they spend more time sharing the joy and the love and what God is doing and not spending so much time on why what you're doing is a bonehead, idiotic move. So don't shy away from your sin. Come to Jesus with it, but above that, don't sin. Spend your time looking at Jesus so that your heart and your affections love him more than the things of this world. Amen? All right, let's pray. 
Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.